Good morning, church. Glad to see you again today. We end this year in the same way we began. This is one of those years that begins with a Sunday uh, and then ends on a Sunday. And so the next time you'll see this happen is 11 years from now. So if you, if you take a look around and you see your kids, some of them will be driving the next time this happens. There'll be some new faces here and there'll be some faces that aren't here. So a lot can happen in 11 years, but one of our aims is where will we be at at, the, at those 11 years? Hopefully closer to the Lord and that will come through uh, staying close to him and continuing to look to him each and every day. And so that's going to be our focus today is gazing upon the Lord and drawing near to his presence. But there's a, a story told of a man and he had a son and his son was going to go off to school. And, and so the father thought, well, this seems to be a pretty, pretty liberal college this my, my son is going off to, and um, I'm afraid that he's going to come back and not believe the truths of the Bible anymore and really drift away from the faith. And so this father told his son, he said, son, don't lose the book of Jonah. Whatever you do, don't lose the book of Jonah. And, you know, and the, so the son went off to college, and every time the father saw him, he'd like, son, don't lose the book of Jonah. So son graduates and, and comes back home, and, you know, what's the first question dad asks? Son, did you lose the book of Jonah? And you know what the son said? No, I, I didn't, dad, but you did. What do you mean I lost it? I haven't lost the book of Jonah. Well, you see, dad, before I left, I tore it out of your Bible. You haven't noticed that in these four years, so who's lost the book of Jonah? Now, many of us, perhaps, and this, this would be a good time to do a Bible check, so if you have your Bibles, let's see if it's, make sure it's still there, so if you can turn to the book of Jonah. We also have some ushers who have Bibles that I know have the book in it, so if yours is missing it, just raise your hand and they'll be glad to give you one. Now, I know that, you know, most likely none of you have had it torn out of your Bible, but it's very possible that we can still lose the book of Jonah. And, and by that, I mean we lose the message of it. We, we tend to think of it as this story about a runaway prophet and a fish, and there's really not much application to our lives. I mean, after all, uh, how many of us does God call and tell to go to Nineveh? So we often approach this book as if it's some kind of a target, like just a don't be like Jonah kind of a feel, and then we're satisfied because we're, sure, we're pretty sure we're not like Jonah, so we move on past it. But what if we were more alike Jonah than we really think we are? What if we're closer to him than we really think? So these 48 verses, Jonah only has 48 verses, they, they matter a lot because they tell us who God is. You know, there's a lot of questions that we have about the book of Jonah, like what kind of fish swallowed him? Or why was he so reluctant to go? Or did the Ninevites really repent? And those are good questions, but we don't have a lot of answers to those per se. But some things we do know are truths about God that you're going to find in this book of Jonah here. And frankly, all of us here today are here because of the book of Jonah. And what I mean by that is God's promises found in his covenants to Abraham are for us, the Gentiles. And if that were not the case, none of us would be here today, at least in a, in a sense of being blessed. And so the book of Jonah is confirmation that God keeps his promises 
to everybody, including the Gentiles. So that's good news for us today. So I plan over the course of two Sundays, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after that, to cover the book of Jonah. So this week it'll be the first two chapters, and then the next time the uh, last two chapters. I think that's a good way to end the year and a good way to begin the year of reminding ourselves these truths about God. So what we'll see in the, the book of Jonah is that it prepares us for the coming of a greater Jonah. So as Nineveh is blessed, as God's mercies are extended to it, so will even more Gentiles be blessed as mercies are extended to them through Jesus Christ. So this message of Jonah is a message of mercy through judgment, and it's going to find its greatest fulfillment in the person of Christ. So if you have your Bibles now, you'll please stand for the reading of God's Word. Jonah chapter 1, we'll be reading the first two chapters. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps, your, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he has told them, then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to try to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head, 
At the root of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You may be seated. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer here. Our dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this moving story, a story that happened centuries ago, but yet has great implications for us today. We're thankful for your salvation through judgment and the way that you saved and delivered Jonah, this rebellious prophet. Likewise, we are thankful for your salvation of us, the way you have saved and rescued us, rebellious people, and have put us in new standing with you. So we pray from looking at the message of Jonah and looking to our great Savior, Jesus Christ, that we can find hope and strength and grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the, the story of Jonah here is one I'm sure that most of you know at least fairly well, at least the first two chapters, right? The story of the runaway prophet and the fish, but probably not so much the second two chapters. So the main point that we're going to see um, not only today but next time is this, that it's we who are far more like Jonah than we think need a greater Jonah who willingly obeys and lays down his life for our sake. So we, who are more like Jonah than we think, need that greater Jonah who willingly obeys and lays down his life for our sake. So our points today will reinforce that main point that we'll be looking at there of this greater Jonah. So first, let's take a look at Jonah. Okay, so first, like Jonah, we descend deeper and deeper into disaster when we disobey. We go deeper and deeper into disaster when we disobey. So the background to Jonah here is in 2 Kings chapter 14. There Jonah is mentioned. He's, a, he's going to be a prophet of salvation uh, through Jeroboam II, who is king of Israel at that time, despite the wickedness of Israel. So the Lord was going to show his mercy to wicked Israel. And he was also going to prepare Jonah and the people for showing mercy to those outside of Israel. So Jonah and the people were going to see that God's mercy extends beyond national borders. Now, you may not know a lot about Jonah, and there's really not a lot we do know about him. In Jewish tradition, he is thought to be the son of the widow that Elijah raised from the dead. That's who he's associated with. He's associated with the resurrection, this near-death sea experience. I mean, I think that would, that would be really, really cool if that were true. If, if this is really the guy that came back to life again, the widow's son that was raised up, I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Like, here is, here's a guy who has two uh, death experiences, so to speak. Now, I can't verify that. Don't know if it's true, but that's what Jewish uh, tradition has. So we, we won't hang a lot on that. But clearly, the book opens with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. We would assume that Jonah is doing the right thing as the Lord selects him to be a spokesman. Uh, so from the start, Jonah had a responsibility to do something with the message that God was entrusting him with. It, it was a call to action, a call to action. Jonah wasn't just to sit around and think about it a while and plan out this big, huge strategy. He was simply to go and obey. Now, there's no doubt that Jonah was probably doing a lot of good things 
during this time. I mean, he's probably a very busy guy. I, I don't know what he's doing, maybe tending sheep or profiting, whatever that looks like. But probably very busy, doing a lot of good things, but God had a message for him, all right? And so God had to interrupt Jonah's busy life and say, listen, Jonah, I need you to do something else. I need you to go here to some people who need to hear this message. And where was that to get, where was he to go? Well, he was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was capital of Assyria. They were the great power at this time. It was a massive city uh, in a few more years. Israel would fall captivity to the Assyrians. So Nineveh uh, was about 600 miles away from Israel, and it was associated with evil. Um, It came to represent the forces of evil coming against the people of God. Even in the early church, Nineveh was regarded as a symbol of the devil. So it's no wonder Jonah wasn't very excited to get up and go there, right? Anyone blame him for that? I certainly don't. Again, during, during this point in history, uh, both the mercy and the judgment of God were on display. So God's people were living very unfaithfully to God, and at times God would send his prophets to them, telling them that he was going to judge them through the Gentiles. And the prophets had to be the bearers of bad news, so to speak. So Jonah knows that God is going to use the Assyrians to come against Israel as judgment. And now he has to go to the Assyrians to help them out. So it makes a little sense, doesn't it, that he's a little reluctant to do that. doesn't make it right, but I think we can understand that reluctance there. So we see this initial command to, to get up, to arise, and, and then to go. So the verb, um, it frequently is used for actually getting up, but oftentimes it can mean simply obeying, simply going. So it's not so much like Jonah was just sleeping in a hammock somewhere and God says, okay, sleeper, get up and go. Uh, It's more like God God is calling Jonah to go and don't delay. Like right now, let's go, Let's, let's get on with it. So Jonah, he's commanded to get up and go. Instead, he gets up and flees, the opposite of what God wants. Ironically, the presence that Jonah is fleeing is the very presence Jonah is needing the most. And I think it's important to remember that the only alternative to living in God's presence is living in chaos and death. So Jonah thinks that maybe he's headed for a nice escape or a nice vacation, but in reality, he's on this downward descent to death. If you have your Bibles here, just look at all the times it speaks of this descent or Jonah going down. If you just look at that in the first chapter there, down to Tarshish, down to the ship. Eventually, he's going to go down into the sea, down into the belly of the fish. This downward descent is not merely geographical, right? The more Jonah presses forward in his disobedience, the deeper his spiritual decline and descent So I really want to drive that point home. The more we press forward in disobedience, the darker and deeper the descent we will experience spiritually. So what makes this story especially troubling is the one who knew of God's mercy and grace and love the most was the one who was fleeing it, the one who was resisting it the most. Now I get... Listen, I get that the Lord is not telling any of you literally to get up and go to Nineveh today, right? But of all the things that he's telling you to do, is there anything you may be resisting or rebelling against? 
Reluctance is too weak of a word for Jonah. He's rebelling, okay? He's a rebel. He's not just reluctant, he's rebelling. And likewise, when we refuse to obey, we are rebelling. So, for example, what about that person you're supposed to love or forgive? If you're not doing that, you're rebelling. What about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or loving our neighbor as ourself? How are we doing against, with that? So I think if we look hard, we can probably find some areas of our life that we are rebelling against God in. And there's a, a warning, a danger, that if we continue on that trajectory, we will only go down further. So Jonah knows that he can't get away from God, right? He's read Psalm 139, uh, verses 7 to 10, that, that talk about God being everywhere. So, so he knows that, that part of it. But what he's seeking to do is escape the fellowship and participation that true covenant members enjoy. So in a sense, he's seeking to banish himself. But that's not the way it works. Sinners don't banish themselves. It's only the Lord who banishes people. And sadly, Jonah believes that a banishment from the Lord is better than obedience. That's a pretty, pretty bad place to get to, isn't it? Now, make no mistake, ministry is difficult. It was not easy being a prophet. And ministry is no diff- it's not easy for you either, living your Christian lives. Why? Because we face opposition both inside the community of God and outside the community of God. It's, it's hard work to proclaim mercy to undeserving people. You'll get your hand bit at times, right? So ministry is hard. Now, Jonah gets, he pays the fare, he goes down into the ship, he starts to head off, and, and everything's looking great until, until what? The storm comes. This must have been a very significant storm, okay? So these guys were professional sailors. I know some of you boat, okay? So these are not like guys who go to the Peoria River every once in a while and are boaters, okay? These are like professional sailors. And so if, if the sky gets a little dark and, and they see a little storm, they're not easily panicked, But what you see in the text here is they are terrified. So that reality indicates that this is no average storm they're running into. I mean, this is the granddaddy of all storms right here. The original language here is is actually quite humorous. It could be translated something like this. The, The ship expected itself to crack up or the ship is about to become a nervous wreck. So the the Lord is really personifying the ship and using the very means that Jonah is trying to escape with to actually resist and stop Jonah. Quite ironic, isn't it? And so maybe for some of you, the very means that you're seeking to escape from God are going to be the very means that God uses to resist and to bring you back to him. Now in verse 4, if you look at that, notice that the Lord flung, or Yahweh flung. So it's, it's this picture of the Lord flinging the wind against Jonah like a spear. It's this divine warrior fighting against Jonah. The flinging of the wind will ultimately result in Jonah being flung into the sea. So the problem here is not that Jonah ran into a bad storm. That's not the problem. No, the problem is that Jonah ran into the Lord. And when God is your problem... Only God is your solution. And I just want you to take, take note of that, okay? When God is your problem, only God is your solution. So could that be true for anyone here today? Maybe your problem is not the storm that you think you're facing. 
Maybe that's not the problem. Maybe the problem is God. Maybe you've run into the Lord and he will not let you pass until you've come to agreement with his terms. Now, the part of the, uh, more part of the irony is, where is Jonah at while this is happening? And so we, we can almost laugh as we find out he's fast, fast asleep in the bowels of the ship. The deepest part of the ship is giving us clue to the depths that Jonah is heading or descending. So the sailors resort to casting lots to try to figure out what's going on with this. Who are we going to blame for this? And uh, the casting of the dice, of course, as we know, is even in God's hands. It's no accident that Jonah was selected. God ordained that. So it comes up with Jonah. And upon questioning, Jonah reveals to these pagan sailors the true God. So if there is hope to be found, it will only be found in the God who created the sea and the earth. Upon hearing this, the sailors are greatly afraid. I mean, you thought they were scared of the storm? Oh no, they're even more scared of God at this point right here because they know the true God. So they look to Jonah for the solution. Jonah's response comes across as pretty shocking. Well, just throw me into the sea. That'll, that'll fix the problem. Now, previously, the sailors had been throwing the cargo into the sea. So anything that had been you know, viewed as dead weight, they were throwing overboard. Jonah, who was hiding in the cargo, really is like that cargo in his rebellion. He's nothing but dead weight. He's useless. You know, we may be wondering, so why didn't Jonah just jump into the sea himself? Why did they have to throw him into the sea? I don't know. I'm not sure quite the answer to that. It could be that God is using these pagan sailors as an instrument of judgment against Jonah. But we know that Jonah doesn't have the option to carry out judgment against himself. It can also seem a little strange that Jonah just doesn't simply repent at this point. I mean, why doesn't he say, oh, you're right, God, I'm so sorry. I, was, I should have listened to you. You know, will you forgive me? Can we just end this now and I'll go and just steer the ship? I'll go right where you want. Well, it seems that Jonah has a twisted sense of judgment. I mean, on one hand, he doesn't want the sailors to die as a result of his sin. But then on the other hand, he won't repent because that would mean he'd have to obey and do what God says. So he's, again, he's more willing to die and face the judgment of God than he is to obey and go. Now, I'm not sure that our sense of justice is better than Jonah's at times. I mean, for example, we can become more angrier at the way that others have responded or sinned against us than the way that we've sinned against them. I've seen plenty of people fired up and upset about why a church does or doesn't do something they, they like or don't like, all the while being okay with their own bitterness and, and lack of love. So again, we are a lot more like Jonah than we think we are. Now, the sailors initially respond to this, uh, what Jonah tells them, by rowing harder to try to get back to land. But you'll see that they are unable to do so. Why? The wind is against them. So this, is, this verb here for rowing is not the normal term for rowing. It, it actually means to dig. In Amos 9.2, it refers to digging one's way to shale. So while the sailors think they are rowing back to land, they are actually digging themselves a hole to shale. In response to the rowing, the storm increases. Again, the Lord will not let them escape. This time, though, the sailors pray differently. They are now praying to the one true God. 
not some local deity. They pray that the Lord doesn't destroy them for what they have done, and they pray that God won't come back to hold them responsible. So these sailors are used to dealing with the gods of the Canaanites and the the Mesopotamians who are capricious, who come back to punish. And they're, they're not initially realizing that the Lord is different. But this time, their prayers are actually directed to the one who can truly save them. So when Jonah is thrown into the sea, God appoints a great fish to come and swallow him. The fish is both the means of salvation and judgment. There's not a choice between salvation or judgment. It's both. It's salvation through judgment. The Lord could have used anything to save Jonah, right? I mean, he could have had an island appear. He could have had like a helicopter come down. I don't know. He could have transported him somewhere. So he uses a strange choice of a fish. But we will see soon that the Lord often uses strange ways to bring about salvation. And we'll see an even greater, perhaps stranger way of salvation in a moment. So that leads us to our second point. Christ, the greater Jonah, willingly obeyed and embraced his prophetic duties so that we could be saved. Christ, the greater Jonah, willingly obeyed and embraced his prophetic duties so that we could be saved. So let's just take a moment to summarize uh, Jonah again and how we are like him. So Jonah is guilty. He doesn't want to do God's will. He brings other people into danger. He runs away from God. He seeks to escape God's will by sleeping, and he runs away from his prophetic duties, right? That's Jonah. But how are we many times like him? Well, we too are guilty. We do not naturally want to do God's will. Our sins often bring other people into danger and hurt them. We seek to escape God's will, sometimes by sleeping, but other times by finding escape in in things like entertainment or pleasure or possessions or even isolation. Now, this idea of Christ being a greater Jonah is not something imposed on the text. In Luke 11.32, Jesus refers to himself as one who is greater than Jonah. His anticipated death and resurrection will be an even greater sign than what happened with Jonah in the fish. But unlike this Jonah, Jesus is innocent and seeks to do the will of the Father. He brings other people to safety. He can sleep in the midst of the storms that he experiences because he's doing the Father's will. He willingly embraces his prophetic duties. Throughout Scripture, time and time again, we see Christ's perfect obedience. Jesus continually mentions that he only does the will of the Father. In just a few passages that point that out, uh, John 5.30, for example, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the one of him who sent me. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 8.28-29, and Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always. And that's good news for us, right? That Jesus always did the things that are pleasing to the Father. Now, we rejoice much at at the obedience of Christ in his death, and rightfully so. That is a good thing to rejoice in, that Jesus obeyed Christ and died for us. But unfortunately, we give less attention to the sinless obedience of Christ in his life and why that matters. 
we see from the Scriptures that God requires perfect obedience. This means that two things are necessary for our justification. First, the penalty for sin must be met, and secondly, the law must be perfectly obeyed. So Adam and every single person that followed him failed to adequately pay the debt, the penalty for sin, and in addition, they failed to obey the law perfectly. So in the storyline of Scripture, we needed one who could do both of those things, pay the penalty of sin and obey perfectly. You see, the law places a punishment on all those who would disobey. So Christ's death was necessary to remove this punishment. But the law also promises life to all who would obey completely. And it's this active obedience of Christ, His perfect keeping of the law, means that we get credit for the obedience of Jesus. In other words, we don't simply have our guilt forgiven. To use the imagery of the prophet uh, Zechariah, the Lord removes the filthy garments of our guilt and then clothes us with the beautiful garments, the beautiful robes of righteousness. So our text today does point us to the obedience of Christ and His death, and we'll talk about that more here coming up, but one thing is clear, that Jonah's sacrifice is very messy, very messy. It's questionable how pure his motives are when he tells them to throw, throw him overboard. In some sense, he's functioning as a scapegoat, and the sacrifice he makes saves the sailors. But as messy and as unclear as Jonah's sacrifice is, it pales in comparison to Christ's sacrifice. Jesus, the greater Jonah, gives his life willingly, not begrudgingly. He accepts condemnation for sins he has not done. While the sailors are only saved physically through Jonah's sacrifice, Jesus saves his people spiritually. Jonah couldn't give his life to save the sailors' souls. He couldn't pay for their sins, but Jesus can. Jonah himself needed a sacrifice in order to be saved, while Jesus did not. So that leads us to our third point. Like Jonah, our disobedience leads to death and abandonment. Like Jonah, our disobedience leads to death and abandonment. So what would you think, what would be your thoughts if you were dying and ready to go in the presence of the Lord? What would you be thinking? Well, here in chapter 2, we have the thoughts of one who is pretty much at that place and due to his own sin. So chapter 2 begins by Jonah praying. We don't know how long he was in the fish before he started to pray. He, he finally had to be humbled to the point where, okay, Lord, you're my only option here. I'm going to pray to you now. His prayer, although it expresses gratitude and praise, is very self-centered and lacking repentance. What's sad is how much quicker the pagan sailors prayed than, how, than, than compared to Jonah. But clearly, we see Jonah hitting rock bottom in chapter 2. His sin and disobedience have led him here. And, and this is what happens in our sin and disobedience. If, if left unchecked, if we do not turn to Christ, this is where it takes us, to the point of death. Now, Jonah describes his experience here as feeling like he's at the gates of death. Now, to understand this, it's, it's important to know that in the Old Testament, death was more than just your organs shutting down and you going out of existence. Death and, and life, you know, so life, for example, was associated with this fullness, with this joy. Death was associated with emptiness and, and nothingness, right? So, 
There's an emptiness. There's a loss that Jonah's experiencing. He's alone. He's cut off from the blessings of God. And it's this kind of death that was feared more than simply going out of existence. Now, one thing you see here is that Jonah's prayer is very highly structured. He uses the realms of death and chaos to express his suffering. He talks about shale, and shale was a place you did not want to go. Trust me, you don't want to go there because it's the opposite extreme to Yahweh, to the Lord. Jonah is acknowledging it's God who's hurled him here. So he expresses this cry that he feels abandoned from God. He's using metaphors. He's straining to, to find words to describe the depths of his struggles. While it's good that Jonah cries out to the Lord, it's certainly questionable about the nature of his cry. For example, what's problematic in his prayer is the focus on Jonah instead of the Lord. In verses 7 to 8, for example, it's Jonah who is the one who is remembering the faithfulness of the Lord. Now, the imagery Jonah is using should take you back to a similar flood account, Genesis 6 through 9. And there, the focus is on the Lord remembering Noah. There are a number of passages in Scripture that talk about the Lord remembering the faithful covenant members. Uh, So this makes Jonah's expression of me remembering the Lord seem very out of place. Jonah's prayer also lacks repentance or any mention of wrongdoing. He states that he was in danger and the Lord delivered him. Well, that's true, but not far enough, right? In verses 8 to 9, Jonah seems to be resting on his own righteousness as he describes how unlike those other pagans he he is. He's probably referring to the sailors, but Jonah has no idea that after he was thrown uh, out of the ship that these sailors now, now, at least in some sense, acknowledge the true God and worship him. So Jonah's talk is a lot better than his actions. He's promising to offer sacrifices. He's promising to pay back what he's vowed, but not to repent and obey. So this lack of obedience or this lack of repentance is going to lead to problematic events in chapters 3 and 4. Then finally, the, the fish vomits Jonah onto the land. So vomiting is always used negatively in Scripture, just like we probably do, right? It's, it's a picture of God's disgust for sin. I'm pretty sure that after three days, that fish was sick of Jonah. Pretty sure that it wanted him out too. But I think that God is more disgusted by Jonah's refusal to love people who are different than himself and to take his message of salvation and mercy and judgment to them. So God himself is is pretty disgusted by Jonah's actions. But our story doesn't end there because it leads us to our fourth point. So Christ, the greater Jonah, experienced the ultimate death and abandonment so that we could live. Christ, the greater Jonah, experienced the ultimate death and abandonment so that we could live. Now, the important thing that I don't want you to come away with is, is thinking that Jesus is just a little bit better than Jonah. You know, Jonah's here and, and Jesus is up here. No, that's, that's not how it works, right? Jesus is so much better than Jonah. Jonah is pointing us to the true Jonah, the one who is far, far greater So if we want to understand more of this contrast between Jonah and Christ, we need to go back to the way, or go forward to the way, I should say, in which uh, Jesus himself does that. 
So he does that in the Gospel of Luke, but he also does that in the Gospel of Matthew. So in Matthew 12, 40 to 41, for example, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was, in, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Okay, so in this account in Matthew, Jesus compares himself to Jonah in two ways. First, uh, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so will Jesus be in the heart of the earth. And second, as Jonah was a preacher of repentance to Nineveh, so was Jesus a preacher of repentance to that generation. So So Jonah's preaching was confirmed by his deliverance from the fish, And so will Christ's preaching or Christ's message be confirmed by his deliverance from the grave. Jonah's passage from death to life is an image. It's a picture of Christ's victory as he dies and rises from the dead. So Jonah's watery ordeal then serves as a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. So if the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, how much more should people repent at the preaching of the greater Jonah, Jesus? Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, judicial proceedings were common that involved some kind of physical test to determine guilt. So here in Assyria, the most common test was called a, a watery trial, a river ordeal. And, and the defendant would be, pl- would be placed into the raging river, and if you survived, you were innocent, and if you drowned, you were guilty. Any takers? Sound like a fun trial? Okay, so Jonah is experiencing in chapter 2 his own uh, trial, his own judicial trial. This, this time, though, it's by a holy God. It involves water. So although Jonah is delivered from the water, he's still guilty. He still has to experience the judgment of God against his sin. Jesus, likewise, has a message to fulfill uh, which would include his own judicial trial. But unlike this Jonah, he would pass it with flying colors. So while Jonah finds abandonment because of his sin, there is one who experienced even greater abandonment because of our sin. You see, Jonah experienced rescue before he died. But Christ did not experience or did not even seek any kind of rescue in his death. Jesus' death was much more than a physical death, although it certainly included that. The abandonment that this greater Jonah experienced was deeper, darker, and more traumatic than what this Jonah or any of us have ever been through. Just consider for a moment, if you will, the garden experience. Think back to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus talks about his sorrow overwhelming him to the point of death. He sweat as it were drops of blood. He's praying in Mark uh, 14, for example, for the cup to pass from him, but nevertheless, he's willing to drink it. This cup is the cup of God's wrath, and Jesus understands the forsakenness that he would experience if he drinks of it. To forsake is to abandon or to leave. God will forsake those who forsake him, who break his covenant, who provoke his wrath. So the Gospels record Christ's cry of dereliction in the native tongue of Aramaic. 
Eli, Eli, lama sabathani. One writer says, there are some traumas so deep only your mother tongue will do. So on the cross, Christ experienced the agony of seemingly unanswered supplication. How long, O Lord, wilt thou hide thyself forever? Shall thy wrath burn like fire? Psalm 89, 46. Jesus received the undiluted guilt and condemnation due to his people's sins, which became a crushing weight upon his soul. God made Christ to be sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And Christ bore this weight in absolute aloneness without the slightest comfort from God or man. So just for a moment, I just want you to take some time and, and just think for a second as I talk about this, the depth of the abandonment and forsakenness that Jesus experienced for us. It has three aspects. First, the withdrawing of all human comforts. No more human comforts, no human dignity, no common grace, no support, no blessing, no help. So part of, that, part of that forsaking, that abandonment, is that Jesus loses all human comforts. Secondly, in his abandonment, Jesus would experience the active wrath of God against sin. So God the Father was sending all of the storehouses of hell and wrath against the Son. Quite a lot, isn't it? Third, in his abandonment, the Son would experience the full, the Son would endure the full experience of death and separation from God. The Son would go through hell, so to speak. He would become a curse for us. As the Apostles' Creed states, he would descend to hell. Now, even if that's not a literal descent into hell, he nevertheless endured a hell-like experience. So the fact that the Son endures all of this for us willingly emphasizes several important truths. First, sin must be incredibly grievous, incredibly horrible for the Son to endure all of these trials. There is no other option for salvation other than through the cross. Secondly, the fact that Jesus did this willingly emphasizes God's great love for us. So when you feel unloved or abandoned, where do you look? What well, the cross, you will see no greater display of God's love for you. And third, Jesus says that our salvation is finished. His final words, it is finished. There is nothing for you to pay or contribute to your salvation. So where do we go in times of anguish and abandonment? For Jonah and the Old Testament saints, it was the temple. But for we as Christians, it's Christ. One comfort that we as believers have is knowing that God is near to us. When we're suffering, he is near. When we're afflicted, even to the point of death, he is near. He acts and delivers his people time and time again. Even from our enemies, Isaiah 43, 1-3, he's promised never to leave or forsake us, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. So even though Jonah's rebellion has brought him low, God's faithfulness will raise him up. Jonah notes in verse 8 that those who cling to idols uh, are in danger of forsaking the grace that could be theirs. So anytime we abandon this allegiance to God, it puts us in a dangerous spot because there's no other aid there's no other help that can come from anywhere other than God. So the story of Jonah is a picture of death and deliverance. 
And we see this no better than in Jesus Christ who died but did not stay dead. He arose, he ascended into heaven, and his resurrection is a witness to his words and his power. They serve a purpose. So I'd like to end with a question that we've been seeking to answer. Why do we need a better Jonah? Why do we need a better Jonah? And what difference does it make that we have one? You see, it's not, not, not that helpful to just summarize the book of Jonah as in just don't be like Jonah, kind of a VeggieTales kind of a thing. You see, we need a better Jonah because we are like Jonah. We are more like him than we think. Faithless at times, running away from our duty, concerned primarily for our own interests. So our hope is found in knowing that a greater Jonah lives who is faithful when we are not, who gave his life for people like us, and who now wants us to display his magnificent grace to people who are different than us. So how do we go about applying these truths that we heard here from Jonah? How do we go about putting into action this teaching on Christ's abandonment and death? Not necessarily by going and doing the same thing. We're not Jesus. We can't do what Jesus did. But I believe the Heidelberg Catechism states, uh, states it very helpfully like this. So the question, what do you understand by the word suffered? And the answer is that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against sin of the whole human race. This he did that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might, he might set us free body and soul, from eternal condemnation, and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Why does the creed add he descended into hell? To assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. So how do you apply this today? by reflecting and remembering on the greater Jonah who has endured this so that you don't have to. Let's pray here as we finish. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we've taken a look today at an old passage in Scripture, a passage that we tend to rush through pretty quickly because we think we know the story. But nevertheless, Lord, in this, in this little book of only 48 verses is a goldmine of your redemption, of your great plan of rescue, your love for people of all different kinds. We're thankful, Lord, that you give Jonah more than one chance. And we're thankful, too, that you do the same with us. But what we're most gracious for is that we have a better Jonah, one who was willing to give his life for our sake, one who was willing to do this even when he didn't have to. So I pray today, Lord, if there's any out there, and even for all of us, that we may cling to Christ and look to him and run to the true Jonah and then live in light of that. In your name we pray. Amen.